You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Have you heard that story of Jesus' birth that reminds us of why we celebrate the Christmas season? We're right now going through our series on the Advent, looking at the different aspects of this gift of the Savior that we've been given. But before we get into all of that, let's seek the Lord's guidance in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in a spirit of thankfulness for all of the many blessings that you've bestowed upon us, whether that be the breath in our lungs, the clothes on our back, or the food we had for breakfast. God, we praise you for who you are. God, I pray that these words that I speak today would not be my own, that they would be yours. That it would be your Holy Spirit that moves in this place and that takes root in the hearts of all who hear and that you would move among us and conform us to your image through the words I speak and through your Holy Spirit's actions in our hearts. We pray these things in your heavenly name. Amen. Last week, if y'all were here, you would have heard from Levin about that idyllic Christmas scene. The one with the fireplace and the scent of gingerbread throughout the house. Where we saw this incredible gift being given to this little girl. Of her father returning home after being deployed overseas for many months. We know that this gift of being reunited with her father brings this little girl great joy. And it, fills, it fulfills her hope of having her daddy home for Christmas. Her father's love physically surrounded her in a hug and all of her world was at peace. Like that little girl in the story, we can now unwrap the gift of our Savior and see how because of the gift of Jesus that God has given us, we can now experience true joy, true hope, true love, and true peace. Last week we examined how the gift of Jesus brings us true joy, and this week we will examine that because God has given us the gift of the Savior, we can have true hope. We will examine the hope of the Savior from the past, and the hope of the Savior that we have here and now, and we will come to learn that in the future we will have no hope. You heard me right. How could this be? We will learn this in time, but first we must know what hope is and what the hope is that we are discussing. Let's start with an example. What do you hope for? Imagine you're a student, and you're coming up towards the Christmas break, and all of your professors have conspired against you to put their finals right next to each other. And so you begin to study more and more, and you devote more and more time. You give up your hobbies, you give up sleep, and you focus more and more on studying for these exams. And you find that as you're cramming and as you're prepping for these, you begin to think to yourself more and more often, man, I cannot wait for these to be done. You start to imagine the moment of submitting that final exam and being completely free from the rest of the semester and finally being able to relax and that weight of the exams being lifted off of your shoulders. You, in that moment, are turning to your hope of being freed from the pressure in order to comfort you in a time of distress. Your hope is in the coming relief that has not yet been fulfilled. From that scenario, we can define hope as a feeling of anticipation for some coming event or circumstance. It's important to mention here that biblical hope is not just a mere wish, oh, I wish that this would happen, but a confidence in something that we know is going to happen. In our passage that Alan read for us, we see hope displayed in multiple places. 
we heard in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Here the angel is giving these shepherds a specific hope, the hope of a Savior. Well, a Savior from what? From sin, from death, from oppression, from sorrow, and from all of the evils of this world, and a Savior from our separation from God himself. What a joy we will have when there is no longer any sin to hinder our relationship with God and no sorrow to distract us from the joy that Levin talked about last week. Then in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels here are giving us a hope that this Savior will bring about peace. Imagine true world peace. Not just peace on a national level, but peace on a personal level where there is no more grudges or divisions to divide us from each other. Imagine how light of a load that will be when there's no longer all of the hate and division that we see promulgated in our world today. On top of that, and most importantly, we will have an eternal peace with God, and we can live in fellowship with Him forever. And even more, in verses 30 through 32, we read, "'For my eyes have seen your salvation.'" that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We hear here from Simeon that this is a hope of salvation that is not just limited to the Jews. It is available to all people. There is no restrictions on this. It is for all cultures, for all backgrounds, for all people. So we see in Luke 2 there are three distinct hopes. Hope for a coming salvation, hope for Christ to be a light unto the entire world, and this hope for world peace. This hope has been given to us as part of the gift of our Savior, and it is what we look to when life is tough and what keeps us going on our worst of days. However, this is not the only passage where this hope is expressed. In fact, the Jews of that day were well familiar with this very hope of a Savior, or as they would have called him, the Messiah. There are many passages throughout the Old Testament that discuss this Messiah, and we will examine some of those in just a moment. But just as we have hope and that freedom and peace of being done with those exams, the Jews of that day had hope in a coming freedom and peace that hadn't yet arrived for them. We'll examine some of these passages and get, this underst- get a better understanding of what the Jews would have thought about their Messiah before he was revealed in Christ. Their understanding of the Messiah comes exclusively from the Old Testament, especially during Jesus' day. Though a lot of their understanding about their Messiah was true, they didn't fully understand the whole picture of what he would look like. Let's look at a small portion of these passages and see what, how they got to this picture of their Messiah. We can begin by turning to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, often quoted in Christmas time but we see a perfect example of what the Jews were hoping for from their Messiah in this passage. Isaiah writes in chapter 9, starting in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. 
from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In this passage, we can clearly see a hope for a holy ruler, one who will run a type of government, or more specifically, a kingdom, one based on the throne of David, which means a united Jewish kingdom. And this kingdom will be eternal and full of peace and justice and righteousness, all definitely things to look forward to. In addition to the nature of this kingdom itself, we can see from this passage, it also gives us insight as to what the leader of this kingdom will be like, and more specifically focusing on the names that it gives to him. It calls him Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We also see language and ideas similar to this in other passages that discuss the Messiah. And we can find another one only two chapters over if you turn to Isaiah chapter 11. We will get more insight on how these Jews would have thought of their Messiah to come. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and the first part of 3, the prophet Isaiah writes, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This portrayal of this figure is of somebody so glorious, so marvelous, that they ought to be described with terms that invoke God's very own eternal splendor and nature. When they thought of this Messiah, the imagery invoked in their heads would be that of God's power and glory. And they, logically, would have expected this figure to embody those attributes. When we consider the history and the culture of Israel, the inclination to envision this glorious conquering king becomes even more apparent. Because for the vast majority of Israel's history, the nation has been constantly subjugated and conquered by foreign powers. Since 605 BCE, the nation of Israel has been constantly under the rule of Gentile kingdoms, with many of the Jews being exiled from their land itself to this day. In fact, the United States has the largest Jewish population of any country in the world today, not Israel, the promised land. With such a long history of division and subjugation, there is great desire to see Israel as a nation truly united and inside of the promised land that God promised them. And these hopes for a coming kingdom are inevitably attached to the man who will bring about and rule that kingdom, to this Messiah. And these Jews, all of them, the whole nation in, throughout their history, had this immense hope of this Messiah who would come and abolish the ruling powers of oppression of their time and so fell into an error that we can find ourselves in as well. They presumed to understand God's plan for them and they approached their hopes for God's plan with their own desires and expectations and arrogance rather than with awe and surrender. They allowed their grandiose expectations to cloud their vision and blind themselves to the fact that oftentimes God will work in ways that are far stranger, far more beautiful, and far more grand and complex than anything we could ever comprehend. Scripture backs this up, which we can see if we turn to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, where the prophet Isaiah is giving us some insight on how we are to approach God with our expectations and understandings. Isaiah writes in 50, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
the Jews of Jesus' day were so devoted to their own expectations that even when they saw the Messiah with their own two eyes, when they saw the miracles and the signs of his position, they did not accept him as their savior. Many rejected him. The fulfillment of their hope was right before their eyes. But in reality, their hope was not in God's plan. Their hope was in their own expectations. And they missed him. How tragic that truly is. However, not all Jews were so devoted to these ideas as many did surrender themselves and followed after Jesus. They left their sinful and, sinful and flawed ways of thought and action and followed their true Messiah. And in Christ, they saw their hopes in God's plan fulfilled, but not in its entirety. They saw the bonds of sin and death shattered and became alive spiritually through Christ. But they did not see the entire work of God completed. Our hope now is not entirely different from the hope of the Jews in the past. We still look forward to that coming kingdom that will bring about peace on earth. And salvation has been made available to all through the saving work of Christ. And all can be in a relationship with God their Father. And all can be made right and, found and find the freedom that is available through Christ. And we know that we can accept and hold on to that salvation, to that hope here today. This hope of a Savior who can save us from the oppressive presence of sin in the world. And this is an amazing hope that we have. It is because of this hope that we can find freedom from our imperfections and from the sin that is crouching within our hearts seeking to devour us. We can find freedom from the jealousy and envy of others that leads us so often into despair as we compare ourselves to others. We see others and we wish that we were as good looking or maybe that we had as many friends or maybe that we were as smart or witty as others around us. But we can find freedom from these feelings of inadequacy knowing that our Savior died for you. Knowing that his thoughts and his heart were on you just as you are, just as he created you while he hung on the cross and suffered. In addition, we know that this hope of our Savior can lead us to freedom from anxiety and stress that so often engulf our world and weigh us down. Whether it's an anxiety to perform well, maybe a stress of working a job that you despise, or maybe just the pressure to be a good spouse or a good parent. You can have freedom from all of the stress knowing that our Savior is in control and that his plan for us is good. And though we may not be perfect and we can fail, God will come through and bring good from it all. Our hope here today is the freedom from the slavery of sin because we know that our Savior has purchased us from the hands of sin. And of course now, we know because of that hope, we have freedom from all sickness and we never feel anxious, we are never tempted, we never experience loss or stress or none of the evils of the world have any effect on us anymore. Right? Of course not. Some people here today have been in the faith for a long time and can certainly attest to the fact that though we are saved from this bondage of sin and death, the consequences and side effects of this broken and sinful world we still live in regularly afflict them. We live in a strange circumstance as believers today in an odd dichotomy that many have taken to calling the already but not yet. This idea of the already but not yet is a little difficult to wrap our heads around at first, but it becomes easier with an illustration. 
Say, for example, you are beginning a vacation and you are driving towards your destination, say Disney World or somewhere else that's many, many hours away. In that moment where you are driving there, you have already begun your vacation and you're making progress towards your destination, but you are not yet there. It is not until you are in Disney World, when you're standing next to the Mickey Mouse statue, Cinderella's castle is up in front of you, and you're wearing that mouse ears hat that cost you $40, that your vacation is in its fullest swing. This, in that moment, before that, in the car, you are already on your vacation, but you are not yet enjoying the fullness of it. It's the same with us. We already have the bonds of sin and death broken and our offenses against God wiped clean. But we are not yet freed from all of the brokenness and imperfection of our current world. We are moving closer to the fulfillment of God's plan. But to answer the question often asked in long car rides, no, we are not there yet. But we do have hope for when we will get there. If you turn to Romans chapter 5, we see that Paul is expressing this exact hope that we have here and now in light of salvation. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 2, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our hope has been partially fulfilled in that sin is no longer our master, and we now are free to pursue God and be a part of his continued work in the world. However, in the same way as the Jews, we still have a future hope in God's coming kingdom to put an end to all of the pain, the injustice, the division, and the brokenness that we see here today. This very hope is mentioned many times throughout Scripture, as we saw especially in the Old Testament. However, even the New Testament saints looked forward to this renewal, this glorification of our bodies and of the rest of the world. We can see this beautifully presented by Paul if you turn to Romans 8, in verses 22 and 23, where he writes in the middle of this discourse about how we are delivered out of this world. Paul writes in verses 22 and 23, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Here we see Paul saying that we hope or wait eagerly for our adoption as children of God and the redemption or glorification of our bodies when we are one day resurrected to eternal life with God. In other words, we hope for our eternal life in relationship with God and an end to all of the brokenness of the world. Paul also addresses that very brokenness, not only of our own bodies, but of the entire world, saying that all of creation has been groaning, implying serious pain. It reminds me of a time when I experienced a severe case of food poisoning. I have no idea what I ate that night that caused it, but I do know that throughout the course of the evening, it went from annoying to terrible to frustrating to completely debilitating. And it started to hurt so much that I was unable to even drive myself home. Luckily, my brother was able to get me home. And when I got home, all I was able to do was crawl into bed and where I couldn't even really talk or think. I was just left 
hunched over, grasping my stomach, and writhing in agony. All that I was left to do is to groan in pain. Yet I was not without hope, because I knew that if I could endure the pain for long enough, that my body would eventually heal, and that I would get through it. In a similar way, all creation, including ourselves, can feel this way sometimes, where we are just groaning. The pain, and not always physical, the struggles, the sickness, and the hurt of this world can make us groan out to God and plead with him in prayer, asking, Lord, when will this end? Maybe, God, why me? And perhaps the pain is so bad that we are even pleading with God to bring us home to heaven rather than allow the suffering to continue. Sometimes in the depths of our despair, when God seems far from us, our hope for future peace and freedom may be all that keeps us going. But we know that the promises of God to bring us through the world are true and trustworthy. And that God's salvation and plan will see us through this broken world until we are united with Christ in the kingdom to come. Our hope now is that our life here is not like the perfect and eternal life that we have waiting for us. Our focus is no longer on the stress of this world, but on the hope of the next. Paul speaks of this as he writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1.18, when he writes, "...having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints." It is abundantly clear that though we have seen our Savior break the bonds and power of sin and death, God's plan in the world is not yet finished. We still have hope for God's unfulfilled promises and prophecies of the kingdom and of peace are still to come. This is our hope here today, and it relates to those hopes that we saw in Luke chapter 2. If you're keeping track of those, I can give a quick recap. Salvation has been fulfilled. Christ as a light to the world is ongoing, and world peace is still yet to come. What a glorious day, and what a great relief it will be when all of our hopes are realized. When God wipes away all of the rot and brokenness of this world, renewing it to be just as perfect as it was when he spoke it into being. When we will no longer have to worry about stress or anxiety, or anger and strife, where there will be no more political unrest or hate, and we will never have to worry about the sin and death that destroys and separates us from God. What a marvelous hope that we have and that we cherish. And the same level of joy, if not more, should be invoked when we realize that one day we will have no hope. You heard me right. Rejoice, for one day we will have no need for hope. All of these beautiful things will cease to be our hope and will instead be our reality. Paul illustrates why we will no longer need hope perfectly in Romans chapter 8 verse 24, when he speaks to the very nature of hope, when he writes, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Hope is an anticipation or an excitement in expectation for a future event. But there is coming a day when all of these things that we hope for now will come to pass. We will not need to cling to the hope of being one day united with God, And we will not need to cling to the hope that we will one day be glorified and renewed into eternal bodies because we will be living that. It will be our reality. 
Look for a moment at the hope presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is speaking about our hope of renewal that is to come in verses 54 through 57. Paul writes, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There will no longer be death for us. There will no longer be any sting of sin and death. Sin will be completely powerless, absent, non-existent in the coming kingdom. And we can be a part of that kingdom through Christ's salvation. Thanks be to God indeed. There is no need for a hope of being purified from sin and all of its consequences when that is where we will be living, in a sinless world. In the exact same way, one day we will have no need for faith because our faith will become sight. God's promises to deliver us from the oppression of sin and death will be real and will come through. And we will no longer need to have faith that God will do these things. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10 and 13, that love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith and hope are only present until God fulfills all of the promises that we are putting our faith and hope in. And once the work of God has concluded on this earth, all that will remain for us for all of eternity is love. Love in its purest and truest sense, a love between a loving heavenly father and all of his children, where all is at peace and where joy abounds. But for now, we still rely on our hope. And it is a beautiful hope of salvation and future life in eternity. Listen now, church, to some of the final words of the book of Revelation. The prophecy that is still unfulfilled and that we are putting our hope and faith in right now. Listen and take hold of the words that are here in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Church, this is our hope. And it is a hope that has been made available to us through Christ, our Lord and Savior, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the gift of hope that has been given to us through the coming and work of our Lord, 
our Savior, Jesus Christ. Without our Savior, we are hopeless. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses against God. That without him, we are hopelessly ruled by the evil desires of our flesh, enslaved to the most uncivilized and ungodly parts of our nature. And because of our hostility towards God, we deserve the punishment of death. However, it goes on in verses 4 through 9 to give us this beautiful hope. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us together alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one may boast. Church, this is the hope of salvation. This is the hope of our Savior. This is the greatest gift of God that one may be taken from their sinful prison and set free, that we may be given a hope of one day living in eternal joy with God in heaven. What an amazing hope and gift that is. Will you receive it? If you have not yet received this gift, then you do not have this hope. If you reject this gift, you choose to remain in rebellion against God. And to remain a captive to sin and death. And you will miss out on this gift of eternal life. And you will not enjoy the benefits and blessings of heaven. Please, please accept this gift. It's freely given regardless of what you've done. Regardless of your background. Jesus bought and paid for this opportunity on the cross with his very life. To offer you this gift here and now. Please do not leave without accepting it. Christ here is giving you the opportunity to turn away from your sin and be united with him who created you. Do not leave this place today without accepting it. Talk to me or one of the elders or anyone before you leave if you have not yet received this gift. However, if you have received it, will you unwrap it? Will you cherish it? Do you appreciate this amazing gift that God has given you? Do you meditate and praise God daily, both for the salvation that we have now through Christ's sacrifice, but also the blessings that are to come? Do you live your life overwhelmed with the joy of hope of an eternity with your Savior? This is the true hope that is found when we unwrap the gift of our Savior. Take hold of it. Cherish it and share it with anyone and everyone who will listen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your hope that you have given us, for this hope of abundance and life eternal. Lord, I pray that these words, that your scripture, your truth, would take root in our hearts. God, that we would be overcome with this joy, with this gladness, as we live entirely focused on the hope of your blessings to come.
God, give us eyes for the kingdom to come for eternity rather than eyes for this broken and hurting earth. God, I pray that you would empower us to call people out of these painful scenarios, out of this hurting and dying world, and instead give them the life that is found in you. God, we pray all of these things through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.